The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the, world, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because... There the Lord <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the joy of technology. You push the wrong button on the iPad and it's gone. <clears throat> Um, welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. If this is your first time here. Uh, we do uh, welcome you. We're glad you're with us. Uh, I'm the, the, the pastor here, and it's good to be with you this morning. Last week uh, was pretty scary for me. Saturday night, my wife um, basically came down with looked like appendicitis, so we were not here. And uh, one of my Acts 29 brothers uh, brought the word via video, which was, which was great. Um, so it's good to be back. It's good to be here this morning. Um, if you are new here, what we do is we preach verse by verse through the entire book or entire books of the Bible. Um, we don't preach topically, which means like a six-week sermon on stress or a six-week sermon on marriage or a six-week sermon on how to get your kids to do everything you actually want them to do. Um, that would be a great sermon though, right? That'd be a great series. What we do is we choose a book of the Bible. We feel led by the Holy Spirit. And then we work all the way verse by verse through the book of the, through that book of the Bible. Right now we're in the book of Genesis. We've been here for about 11 weeks. And Genesis is an, is an amazing book. And before we get into it today, I want to let you know, if you want to follow along um, our liturgy with us or the scripture, you can go to YouVersion. That's the Bible app on your iPad or uh, whatever the Android one is. I don't remember that one. But uh, you can go there and you can look that up. Also... If you, have, um, if you have an iPhone, an iPad, or one of those Android devices, you can look up Sacred City in your app store. And we have a new Sacred City Church app that's got all of our podcasts there. It's got links to the city. It's got some new stuff. So if you want to check that out, just do it some other time. Don't do it while I'm preaching. <laughs> all right? So I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. I thank you that you indwell in your word, that you are here with us today in the liturgy, in the gathering of your people that you are tangibly with us this morning, and we thank you for that. I thank you that you are not a God that just sits up in the heavens and is quiet, but you are a God who came down. You are a God who dwells in the sacred text that we're going to study today, and you're a God who moves in your people today. 
So I ask you, Father, to move in your people, to think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords that it would be all of you and none of me, that you would listen through the ears of those sitting out there today, Father God, and those listening by podcast or whatever, that you would help us hear what you would have us to hear this morning. Speak and let us hear, Father. Let us have ears to hear what you say to your church. And I pray that we would respond with repentance and faith. All of this is for you. It's for your glory. It's for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. We ready to do this? All right, settle in. Good. Hope mama packed some snacks today because I wasn't here last week, so I got two sermons prepared. Here we go. Genesis is an amazing book right? If you've been here, you, you, you've, you've seen that. People have been studying this book for thousands of years, and there is still a lot for us to learn from this ancient book. Now, this book is all about beginnings. It's, if you remember that we've been going verse by verse, all right? We're, we're through the first nine chapters now. We've learned a lot about creation. We've learned a lot about humanity. We've learned a lot about sin. We've learned that man and woman were created by God, for God in his image to be fruitful and multiply. They were to live in a covenant relationship with each other and with their God. That's the good life, the Bible says, to live in covenant relationship with people and God. That's happiness. But as we know, Adam and Eve blew it. They chose to try to build their own version of happiness separate from God. They didn't want his rule. They didn't need his care. And they decided to try things on their own. Just like all sin, that looked really exciting and promising at first. But after they tried it, they experienced the truth about all sin. Sin, if you didn't know, destroys stuff. Sin destroys stuff. Sin destroys happiness. Sin destroys marriages. Sin turned a peaceful and beautiful earth into a place of violence and catastrophe. And most importantly, sin separates man from God and the people that they were created to be. Sin separates us from our true selves. Throughout the first nine chapters of Genesis, we have watched things get progressively dark and progressively damaging. All people, the Bible says, are the same. They're all separated from God and they rebel against him. But God chooses, if you remember in the story here, God, cho- God chose one dude and his family by grace and he wipes out the rest. Noah and his three sons are, and, his, and their wives are the only humans left on the planet at this point in God's story of where all our hu- the human race comes from. Okay, So that's really fast, catching you up to speed. That's the first nine chapters of the book of Genesis. But have you, ever, have you ever asked yourself, or had someone else ask you, maybe in a missional conversation, or you're talking to someone at a coffee shop or talking to one of your friends, Noah and his three sons and their wives are the only people that, you know, everybody else gets wiped off the face of the planet. We got this one family that's saved, this one family that's left. Then where does all the cultures of the earth come from? Where do all the languages and the people and the different culturals, cult, culturals, the different cultures of the world, where do they all come from? That's a great question, and that's what we're going to answer today. So um, what we're going to do, this sermon's going to start slow, okay? We're, we're, we're going to get up to 30,000 feet, I, I swear, but we're going we're to start off slow because we're in one of those chapters that the only time you read this chapter is when you're looking for baby names, Okay? 
Genesis chapter 10, the only time you ever want to read it is when you're having a baby and you're trying to find something cool that the culture hasn't thought of yet, right? This is where I got my, son named, my son's name, Javin, except I forgot how to spell it and we spelled it wrong. So you're going to go to Genesis chapter 10. When you're there, I want you to say there. Okay. <clears throat> now, if you recall, one of the first things God did when Noah and his family got off the ark was to reiterate. Now listen, reiterate their calling and purpose. Do you remember this? They get off, they get off the boat. Everything's been wiped out and God makes a covenant with them and he gives them this new mission. God reminds them of the mission of God. And he says this, be fruitful and fill the earth, right? That's the mandate. That's the mission that God gave Noah and his family. The same thing he gave Adam and Eve in the garden. He reiterates that and he gives it to Noah and his family as they get off the boat right? God wants the whole earth. Somebody say whole earth. God wants the whole earth filled with his glory and people and cultures that praise his name. He wants the whole globe to glorify his name, the whole globe to be filled with people that live for his glory, that worship his name and point people back to him. That's what God wants, all right? A whole renewed earth. So here in chapter 10, we see Noah and his kids we see them start to get busy, all right? We see them start to try to fulfill this mission of God, to be fruitful and multiply. So chapter 10 is going to show us the descendants of Noah and then where they migrate to, all right? Now, there are a lot of names in here, so I'm just going to fly through this real quick, all right? And I'm I'm just going to say the names with confidence like I know what I'm talking about. Here we go. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. His sons were Shem, Ham and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Okay? So this is a patriarchal society. They traced lineage through the sons. So you're not going to hear anything about the women. You're not going to hear anything about the daughters. They, they trace it through the sons. All right? That's just what's going to happen right now. Here we go. The sons of Japheth. Gomer. Mm, if you're looking for names, skip that one. Okay? Magog, Madai, Javan. All right? Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer. Ashkenaz, Rifa, and Tugamar, yeah, huh? Number four. The sons of Javan are Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dadanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break this down in a little bit. Let's fly, let's fly through it real quick. The sons of Ham, if you remember Ham, he's the rebellious, perverted son of Noah, right? That looked on his father's nakedness and went and got other people to do the same thing. Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, Sabdika, the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Now that's the same true today. Okay. If you name your kid Nimrod, he will be tough because he has to fight. All right. Every day in school, he will be getting picked on and Nimrod will be a tough dude. All right. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. That was just something that was said back then. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelna in the land of Shinar, from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. 
Okay? Now, if you're, gonna, if you're familiar at all with the story of God and the, what's going to happen, some of these cities are very big cities that are going to come down the road in the story of God. Assyria, Nineveh, you're going to Egypt. 12. Resin between Nineveh and Kela, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtabim, <laughs> Paths, Kasluhim, <laughs> from whom the Philistines came. And Kaphtorim, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Semites, the Arvadites, the Zamorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboam, and as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, and the lands, and the sons of their nations. So right away you're going to notice Ham gets a whole lot more um, Bible time. His lineage gets a whole lot more Bible time than the rest of, than, than Japheth or um, uh, Japheth or Shem. And the reason is Moses is writing this as the people are leaving, leaving Egypt and they're, they just left Egypt, descendant of, of Ham. They're about to have to fight off the Canaanites. All right, the Assyrians are coming. I mean, there's all kind of stuff going on right here. So let's just keep going. To Shem also, the father of the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem from Elam, Asher, Archip, mm-hmm, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arch, Ar, Arpachad, father of Shelah, and Shelah, father Eber. To Eber was born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg. For in the days of the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazm, Jera, Hadarim, Uzal, Dikla, Ob, Obel, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived, look, extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem. By their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Now listen. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Okay, now because none of that makes sense, and all of it we just fly through, and if nobody ever taught you this in geography, all the little lines, the little lines on the map, yeah, those aren't really there. All right. When you go and you look on the earth, there's no lines dividing these little nations, right? So a lot of these nations. They don't exist anymore. A lot of these cultures don't exist anymore. But we know where they used to be. And I want you to throw up uh, one of our maps here, Adam. Um, this is used, if you've got a good study Bible, this is going to be in one of your study Bibles. But I want you to look here. This is where Ham and all of Ham's descendants, this is where they settled. Okay? This is basically northern Africa here. Uh, this is where Shem and all Shem's descendants, this is where they settled. And this is where Japheth and all of Japheth's descendants, this is where they settled. This is where they spread across the face of the earth and developed their own culture, their own language, and their own clan. Now, give me the Google Earth version of that. Okay? So this is it right here. Uh, Libya, Egypt, the Sudan, into Ethiopia. This, you saw this, Saudi Arabia, um, uh, I, modern-day Iraq and Iran and Turkey. All right, and this is where Japheth would have settled, okay? So this is the modern-day map, all right? This is where, this is the geographical location of the story that we're talking about, which is very interesting for me because some, when I read 
Magog, and, and I read all these different crazy names. I'm thinking this is in Neverland somewhere, right? But this is the actual where they settled. So I want you to think about this. The, the ark landed right here in the Middle East, okay? And from there, the people are being dispersed and they're spreading across the face of the earth. This is where culture create, began. This is where culture was created, right? It's not like there's people dwelling in the United States somewhere, just kicking it on their own, right? Everything starts here and it spreads out over the face of the earth. Now, this should lead us to ask, our, to ask ourselves, what caused them to spread? Wow, were they just being obedient to God? And God said, when they got off the ark, he said, go be fruitful and fill the earth and, and multiply and spread my name and my fame across the globe. Were the people going, yes, we're so excited about the mission of God. That's exactly what we're going to do. And that's what happened? Absolutely not. Okay, so in verse 10, verse 10, or chapter 10, is actually what happened, but chapter 11, it tells us how it happened. So chapter 11 comes before chapter 10, if you want to read chronologically. Okay, it's a difficult, I told you, it's going to take a little time to get up there. Okay, if you don't get it, that's fine. You can listen to the podcast later and maybe you'll get it the second time around. All right, so this, was, this is the story in chapter 11 is telling us how, what happened to spread people across the earth. Okay, how did it actually take place? All right, so we're going to get into chapter 11 here, but let me just give some, let me just give a little bit of commentary on chapter 10. One thing that we see from chapter 10 is that there is something about God's covenant that travels through family lines and impacts each generation. God does not promise us that our kids will serve him But what we see over and over in scripture is that godless people usually raise godless kids and God worshiping people often raise God worshiping children. We see that here. Some of the nations that come from Noah's rebellious son, Ham, are Egypt, Sodom and Gomorrah, Assyria, Babylon, and the Canaanites. Those nations are going to cause some big trouble for God's people in the future. Ham's legacy is full of wickedness. Godless people who build godless cities and godless empires. As I've been reading and meditating on this text, I've been challenged to start thinking generationally myself. God dropped this huge record of genealogy into a narrative If you want people to read a narrative, don't drop huge chunks of name after name after name after name. But he did it because he wanted us to be rooted in history. He wanted us to to see that this is actual people springing from an actual family line and that I think long-term, God thinks long-term about our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids down the line. We don't do that very often in our day and age, do we? Most of us are so busy, we keep such a frenetic pace that we never really think about what we want for our great-grandkids. That's what I call a family vision. Do you have a family vision? Are you thinking long-term? See, I want to leave a godly legacy. Not so that people will think that I am or I was a great godly man, but because I want my great, great grandkids to be blessed and to know God and walk with him. 
That's what it means for humans to flourish on this earth. And I want my family tree to flourish under the hand of a sovereign and gracious God. God has also been speaking to me about this church and the legacy that we will leave. See, I'm praying that God would lead us to plan a church that would help our great-great-grandkids love Jesus. See, anybody can create a new hot church, a little flash in the pan that springs up and, and gets a big crowd and gets people excited. But so many people my age that have planted those type of churches, five, six, seven, ten years down the road, they're burned out, their family doesn't love Jesus, they're divorced. I mean, the guys had a sexual sin, the thing blew up and got really big and so did his ego and it all comes crashing down less than a generation later. That's not what I want to see for Sacred City. I don't want to see a flash in the pan that burns hot for a second. I'm praying that God would light a fire in us that would burn white hot for generations to come. Generations. This is why we're never going to have a youth ministry. We're not going to segregate our our youth and, 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 and not train them up and not raise them. We want them in this room with us. We want them training them to love Jesus and worship Jesus with the body. It's one of the reasons we do these, do things like this. Because we want to raise our kids to glorify God. We don't want to put them off in some little corner in the church and then have them playing whatever chubby bunny. How many marshmallows? They don't want to do that. They want to know there's something better than chubby bunny. There's an almighty eternal God that wants them, that craves to have them, that died for them, that will give them a new vision and a new mission and will send them out to lead people to Jesus Christ and to glorify God and enjoy him forever. There's bigger things than chubby bunny. Sorry, it's a little rant. Chubby bunny rant. rant. All right. Now listen, one of my mentors, I've got most, not all of them, but a lot of my mentors are dead dudes, okay? So one of my mentors is a guy named Jonathan Edwards. He was a pastor and a preacher. He lived in the 18th century and was in most people's opinion, most theologians' opinion, uh, America's greatest theologian. And one of the things that has moved me about Edwards was that he knew how to think and pray generationally. He had, see, there's all these pressures from the culture. The pressure from the culture is, I don't know what to do with my teenagers, so pastor, make a youth ministry. Why the heck would I know what to do with your kids? They're teenagers. Nobody knows what to do with them. They don't know what to do with themselves, right? They need the word of God. They need to know that God loves them. God's after them. Hey, this too shall pass. Okay, this hormonal hurricane you're in right now, it's going to last a little bit. It is, but you're going to come through it on the other side, right? They need adults. This is just, I'm going off on this. I don't know why, but this is just part of the craziness of youth ministry. Let's take a lot of hormone-enraged teenagers and put them together with some college college kids providing the wisdom. Does that sound like a smart plan to you? I think we should take some hormone-enraged teenagers and put them in a missional community that's got some adults in the group that have been through it. That's got some other... Moms and dads, you better hear this. Some other moms and dads who can say the same thing that mom and dad's saying, but maybe the teenager will respect them because they don't have to go home with them at night. Right? That sounds like a more, that sounds like a better plan to me. It's just common sense, but that sounds like a better plan to me. 
Okay? So there's all this pressure from the culture that we don't know what to do. So, so if we put pressure on things to become attractional, to become a ministry that, that ha- let's have a women's ministry, let's have a men's ministry, let's have a middle-aged ministry, let's have an old folks ministry, let's have a young married ministry. What? All this pressure. So I like to go to old dead dudes. Right? Who, who did the thing a long time ago and they just preached the word of God and they're faithful and God showed up. And if you've ever heard of the Great Awakening, God showed up with Jonathan Edwards was key in the Great Awakening. All right? And this guy knew how not to think in the midst of culture and to, to jump on the fads and what's the new uh, you know, bestseller book in the New York Times and let's build our church around creating teams and creating strategy. And let, no, 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 no. Let's root ourselves in the word of God. What does the word of God say? Let's build that foundation that's generational. Let's think long-term, okay? Jonathan Edwards knew how to do that. Listen to this. He had 11 kids. Baby, we have something to aspire to. My wife is like, he had 11 kids. And listen, he prayed for them all every day. He prayed for all 11 kids every day. But this... This is something that's unique, I think. He would also pray down through four generations. That means he prayed for his kids. He prayed for his grandkids. He prayed for his great-grandkids. And he prayed for his great-great-grandkids. Obviously, they didn't exist except in the loins of their children, right? They didn't exist. He was praying down. He was thinking long-term. He was thinking generationally. When he went before the throne of God every morning in his prayer, he wasn't just praying, oh, Lord, help me get that raise. And, oh, Lord, here's this problem and here's this problem. He was thinking down the road, I want to leave a legacy to my children. I want to change the shape of this young nation. He's thinking long-term. Now, you maybe have heard this. Um, I think that's pretty crazy, isn't it? Have have you ever thought about praying for your great-great-grandkids? And I was going to show a, a clip because there's a clip of uh, the New York Times in 1900. And it ran a story on what I'm about to tell you. So it's well documented. It's docu- it was documented in a secular newspaper, but it's well documented through a lot of um, historians and, and theologians. Listen to this. I want to read you a list of some of Edward's descendants and their accomplishments. Prayed down through four generations. Jonathan Edwards, from his descendants, from his family tree, 300 of them were preachers. 295 were college graduates. 100 were missionaries. 100 were lawyers. 80 held public office, including one vice president of the United States, Aaron Burr. 13 were U.S. senators. One was a state governor. Three were big city mayors and one U.S. comptroller. 75 military officers, 65 college professors, including 13 college presidents, 56 physicians, including one dean of a medical school. I find that amazing. The crazy thing is, because of this man's legacy, if you've ever heard of eugenics, how do I say that? Uh, I think it's eugenics. What kind of what Hitler used to, to go off and say, we can create this, this, this great gene pool of people. We can create the Uber man and the Uber race. A lot of that was taken because people were like, what is going on with this guy's family line? Greatness must be genetic. 
It's not greatness. Greatness is not genetic. Greatness flows through the blessing of God. This man knew how to pray for his lineage, man. It, that, that, this just absolutely blows my mind. And in the newspaper article that's going to show up, it also traced this other guy who has the exact opposite legacy. 90% of his legacy ended up in prison. It's crazy. It's horrible. But I find it amazing. And we see this in Genesis chapter 10. We see how God moves oftentimes, not just through individuals, but through generations. Praying fathers who relish the amazing grace of God oftentimes pass that legacy on to their kids. Do you know that by God's grace or his absence, you're building a legacy right now? If that legacy is a legacy of foolishness, of selfishness, of sinfulness, you, by God's grace, can change that today. You can make a decision today that the family tree stops here and we're sprouting a new branch, right? We're going in a different direction. I'm praying that we would be a church that raises up patriarchs and matriarchs for the glory of God. That we see our kids as a great blessing from the Lord. That we take the responsibility for discipling them in the ways of God. And then like the psalmist says, we see them as arrows in our quiver. They're arrows in our quiver. Meant to be shot out into the world on mission for the glory of God. Your kids are your number one discipling opportunity. Your kids are the ones that you should be shooting out on mission for the glory of God. So Genesis chapter 10 shows us that there are generational consequences and blessings to our current lifestyle. And our kids are watching us. We are teaching them how to walk with God or how to avoid him. But chapter 10 also shows us how people began to spread across the globe. This should lead us to ask the question, how did they spread across the globe? Were they doing this willfully and and obeying God's cultural mandate that was passed down to them from Adam and Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Were they just joyful and obedient and we're on mission for God and we're going to fill the whole earth and we're going to be spread across the world? Not so much. And now chapter 11 is going to tell us exactly how that happened. See, we're going to see here that people don't obey the mission of God to fill the earth. So God steps in. I love it, man. This is just the picture of the sovereignty of God. Fill the earth and multiply. Nah. God steps in. I, he will take it over. He will make sure it happens. So chapter 10, people are dispersed. Whoa. Chapter 10, people are already dispersed. But now chapter 11 is going to tell us how that happened. All right, let's go. 11, verse 1. When you're there, say there. Okay, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Okay, so we start right there. You can see that this comes before chapter 10 because chapter 10, they've already got different languages. They've got different cultures. They're spread across the earth. This is how that happened. Chapter 11 is how chapter 10 came to be. And as people migrated from the east, from where the boat landed, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. All right? So all the world, the Bible teaches us all the world, all the descendants are, are, are all descendants of Noah and his three sons. They all share that common lineage and therefore they all speak the same language. 
And as people begin to migrate away from the, where the ark landed, they found a good stretch of land and decided that it would be a great place to build a city. Now, this is where things get interesting, okay? People really haven't changed that much over the last few thousand years, okay? They're traveling east with the mission to multiply and build cities for the glory of God. But as soon as they find a good stretch of land, they decided, ah, this is going to be a good place to build a city. You know what I think? I think I'll just chill out, right? Mission of God, fill the earth, spread. They find a good stretch of land. They're like, nah, this is good. Let's, let's just build right here. Let's just stop. That's a big mission that God gave them. Fill the whole earth with my glory. That's a big time vision. That's a big, hairy, audacious goal. If you ever read Good to Great, right? That's a big, that's something you print up on banners. Fill the world, fill the whole earth, expand, multiply. That's a big, you, you're going to pass out flyers. You'll be writing it on, on stuff at home. You'll be trying to, this is something to market. Fill the earth, right? Big vision. But what happens? The first stretch of land they find, they decide to settle down. You know things are about to go bad because they straight up say they want to build this city for two sinful reasons. Look. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So this right here, you see the people developing new architectural skills. This is a technological advancement. Up until this moment, they built through sticks and stones and they just blocked them up. They didn't know how to do this. So they literally are cutting out blocks out of clay. They're sitting them in the sun. The sun is baking them. They're becoming bricks and they're using bitumen for mortar. This is a brand new way to build. Allowing people, the cultural advancement, allowing people the technology to build towers, to build literally the first ever skyscraper. Okay, so right away we see the image of God at work here. People are very creative. People see a stretch of land and they're like, I see a tower right there. And the other guy's like, yeah, my house is going to be over there. This could be killer, right? I'm building a moat in the front. I'm going to have a Right? Like he's got this whole, all these people, they've got the architects, right? They're built, they're made in the image of God. They're seeing this city on this plane. They're like, yes, let's build this city. Now, what's, what's bad about that here? Two things. Let's keep reading. Verse four. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Look at this. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What did God tell him to do? What did God tell him to do? Be dispersed over the face of the earth. Go be on mission for the glory of God. And what are they like? Ah, no. Let's build a city so we don't have to be dispersed. Let's build a city so we don't have to obey God. So we can see this is a precursor. Things are about to go bad here. Two things. They want to they make a name for themselves. And they don't want to spread across the world. They don't want to be on mission for God. Two things that are going to be really influential coming up. So right away, once again, story, just on repeat, right? People, like all of us, are disobeying God. God, we are all in for this amazing mission. They get off the boat. They are, they are on boards. They got the t-shirt, man. We on mission, 
right? They got the banners they're hanging it up. They, this is like a capital fundraising campaign where everybody gets really excited. And we will be on mission for you. We'll give our whole life to you. You guys ever pray that prayer, right? Usually teenage camp, you know, summer camp or something. I want to give you everything. I sell out completely to you, right? They're all in. A few miles down the road, this place looks nice. Let's settle here. Whoa, calm down on this mission thing. You ever feel like that? Mission is too hard. The Christian life lived in service to others is just too demanding. Let's just settle down. Calm down, preacher. Calm down. He's young. It'll wear off. People have been saying that for a decade. It still hasn't wore off. Okay. So if you're here hoping that I'm going to calm down, man, you can hope till Jesus comes. Right? It ain't happening. Listen, some people think right here in this text that God is condemning cities. Like, see, this is why cities are bad. Let's move out to the suburbs. That's not it at all. God loves cities. They were God's original idea. When God said to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, that is a mandate to go and build cities and use technology for the glory of God. See, cities serve many great purposes. These people, can you imagine? They're coming with herds, they're coming with animals, and now there's wild animals out there, and they've got all these families that are, that, you know, all their sons and all their daughters that are walking, and they just need a place to, they want a place of comfort and safety. See, cities offer that. They meet a social need that we have as humans. In cities, we have markets and tradesmen. We can share in labor. One guy can produce crops while the other builds the tools that he's going to use to produce those crops. Today in cities, we can find doctors and hospitals. The best doctors and hospitals aren't out in the suburbs. They're in the cities. We have police and firemen in the cities. Cities are where we can all share in the collective good that comes when people live and work together. Cities were God's idea. God built humans, Imago Dei, in his image, and they are filled with an, Im- an, an immense amount, an, a crazy amount of creativity and ingenuity. And a large part of that ingenuity is meant to be used for the glory of God in building good cities. We're here to build a good city. See, cities also arise out of technological advancement. Right here, we see this city is built because they, found a new, they created a new way to build. And a city is birthed out of that. So too today. Many and most cities survive and thrive by being places where technology is highly valued. So God created cities to help us flourish as humans. But just like we have seen so many times in the book of Genesis, man takes a good thing and turns it into a really bad thing. Now, how does he do that? Right? What's the big deal? Why, why is God about to come down and just bring judgment? What's the big deal? If God is pro-city and God loves the city, then why is he about to go off on them? Number one, I already mentioned it earlier. They refuse to scatter. They refuse to be on mission. They said, let us build this city lest we be dispersed. See, God told them to be fruitful and multiply, but listen to this, they would rather 
build walls, hunker down, and stay safe. God desires them to be a missionary people that spread across the world, but they would rather circle the wagons. This reminds me of much of the church today. Many churches like to gather on Sunday morning, but very few know how to scatter Monday through Saturday as missionaries. You got the gathering thing down, but how do you scatter? Today we are the church gathered, but tomorrow we are the church scattered. See, people gather in cities and in churches many times to find a safe place and protect themselves from danger. In the city or in the church, the uncertainties of the wild are tamed and controlled. Like, there's a lot of crazy stuff that goes on outside the city. Like, I want to build a city. They got wild. Think about the people right here. They got wild animals coming in. They don't know what's going on outside. Let's build walls. Let's hunker down. Let's create a safe place for our kids. Think about that. How often does a church function in the exact same way? Let's build walls. Let's make the church gathering really awkward so nobody really understands what's going on and nobody wants to come except the people that are really used to it, right? Let's scare off all those crazy sinners so us holy people can gather together and worship our great God, right? Let's build Christian schools and isolate our children from the real world and let's just settle in to this nice little Christian university, I went to Christian school for one year and it was by far worse than the public school I came from. But we, why do we want to build walls? Why do we think we can protect our kids from the dangerous boogeyman out there? The world might get in. The dangers, the wild is out there. See, people gather in cities and churches many times to find a safe place to protect themselves from danger. We think we can stay safe. Build big enough walls. We'll keep them out. But listen, when our safety becomes more important to us than obeying God by being all about His mission, when our safety becomes more important than being all about God's mission, what happens is that we start to get a little scared of Him. Why are you bullying me, God? Why are you trying to push me out and be on mission? Don't you know it's dangerous out there? Don't you know my kids could see something I don't want them to see or hear something that I don't want them to hear or fall into sin? Or God, why are you pushing me out on mission? This seems so unholy of you. When we think the church is all about being a safe place for Christians to gather together, God's presence now becomes fearful to me. I love the line by C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia about Aslan, the lion, who was a type of Christ if you've read the book. He says, is he safe? He's looking at, like she's looking at, she's looking at Aslan. Is he safe? No, he's not safe. But he's good. 
The same is true of Jesus Christ. The same is true of our great God. Is he safe? Absolutely not. He could take your life in an instant. He could require your life in an instant. He could and he should and he is calling people and sending them to Iraq and Iran and places where they're cutting off the heads of Christians. God is not safe and he does require all of your life. And if you're teaching your kids that you can circle the wagons and God's all about us and being safe, then you are teaching your kids a false religion. He is not safe, but he is good. So what we have many times in the city and in the church is a tamed down version of God. A tamed down version of God. Come, he won't require much of you. God will never really ask much of you. You know, he only really exists to help you out in a pinch. Like God is in heaven sitting on his haunches waiting for you to pray and you just, oh, you need help on that test? Oh, okay. Right? All about whatever you need. God doesn't really require my life. Like he might say, yeah, yeah, I know you want to be a lawyer, but instead I want you to be a missionary or a missionary as a lawyer. You've got all your plans. God is and will require your life. There is no, I'm just this cultural Christian by name only. He requires our life. But when we come to realize, what we come to realize is if the church is safe, this is why we like it, guys. This is why we like, this is why in us is this desire to tame down God, to calm him down, to make him less extreme, more tolerable. Because if he's safe and if the church is meant to be this really safe place, I don't really need God's help. I don't need when Jesus says, it's better that I leave, so I send you the Holy Spirit, a comforter. Why would he send us a comforter if we don't need to be comforted? Why would you need comfort? Because you are living an uncomfortable life in the midst of a culture that screams to you, be comfortable, be comfortable, be comfortable. And God is saying, no, if you have the spirit of God, if you are living on mission, your life should be uncomfortable, so much uncomfortable that you have to have the presence of the Holy Spirit to receive comfort. I am not finding comfort in my job or in my money or in my relationships. They're difficult. They're broken. There's sin in them. I'm repenting. It's difficult here living on mission. I'm not finding comfort there. I need the Holy Spirit. I need God in me, the hope of glory. But when we tame down church, we tame it all just about a gathering. Let's just get a lot of people in here and sing a few Jesus songs and teach our kids how to be sons of Father Abraham and do send them on out. And that's all we need. Then send our kids to Christian Bible college and hope they find a Christian job. Whatever those are. Right? And you see that. You see that in this text. You see that right here. Because the people are so afraid of the things that are wild and uncontrollable, like God, they wall themselves in and they begin to build religion. Do you hear that? They begin to build religion. Now listen, most scholars say this tower that reaches up to heaven, it's called a ziggurat, right? It's this funky looking a uh, temple-like structure. It kind of looks like a pyramid, except it's flat on top, and it's got stairs that reach all the way up to the top. 
And it was the tallest structure ever built up until this point. It looked like it reached literally up into the heavens. And you could walk up there and you could meet with God up there. Just think about the arrogance of man, right? I'm going to build something that reaches to the heavens. And I'm going to go up there and talk to God because I'm up there. Like I'm probably up there. That's probably where he lives. I'm probably that high. Right? So we, we would, this is man's attempt. Now listen to me. This is man's attempt to get to God on their own. Every other religion on the face of the planet is this. Every other religion but Christianity. Every other religion is building a stairway to heaven that if you walk it and you do the right things and you try hard enough, you can get up here on this plane where you can commune with the living God. This is man's attempt at building and creating religion. All religion is, all religion is, is the attempt to manage God. All religion is, is the attempt to manage God, to create a God small enough that I can manage him, that I can handle him, that I can stomach him, that he doesn't have rough edges. I want to cuddly Jesus, right? That's why we paint him with blue eyes and long flowing hair, right? I want to, even though the Bible says when we looked at him, oh, we would look on him and there was nothing about him that was attractive to us. When we paint him, we want the Fabio Jesus, right? So all religion is building a God, trying to build a God or a way to God that we can handle. The Bible calls these things idols. Idolatry is going to be something you can track all the way through the Bible. It's one of the key concepts of the Bible, and it starts here in Genesis. So we see here right away how cities can go bad. They can become a place. Listen, cities, I'm going to even say churches. Cities and churches can become a place where people go to hide from the real God. They become a place where you go to hide from God. You don't really need God. You've got everything managed. They exchange living for God's glory for living their own glory. And then technology becomes a thing to worship and a place to find meaning instead of a tool to be used for the mission of God. Do you hear that? These people, they, what's the first thing they do? They discover a new way to build technological advancement. And what happens? Let's build something about us. They build religion. They build a way to manage God. Many times, technology can be something we worship and not something we use to worship God. People can take a good thing like technology and they can turn it into a thing to find meaning, a God thing, and that corrupts the whole thing. Anytime we take a good thing and make it a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. What do you mean a God thing? How do we know that they're making their effort and their technology? How do we know they're making it into a God thing? They're not building the city and building the tower to glorify God. They're trying to, number two, build a name for themselves. They're letting something other than God name them. Now listen, to get a name in the Bible, 
to get a name in the Bible is to get what we call an identity. When God calls a person, oftentimes he changes based on... Uh-oh, battery. This is like, sounds like a battery. A lot of times he changes their name based on what he has done or what he's going to do in their life. Okay, listen. You see this in Abraham? His name is Abram. And then when God blesses him with children, he can't and gives him a covenant to be the father of many nations. He changes his name to Abraham. Jacob, Israel. Right? Saul, Paul. When God does something meaningful in somebody's life, he oftentimes changes their name. That's a symbol. That's a sign that what we call, he changes their identity. So when God names a person, it is a way of saying, my grace should be the most important factor in your life and in your identity. Listen to this quote by Tim Keller. Our security, our priorities, our sense of worth and uniqueness, all the things we call identity should be based on what God has done for us and in us. That means that if we do not have a name, we are insecure and we have to find out who we are. We have either to grasp, we either have no grasp or an inadequate grasp of what God has done for us. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, if you don't have a name given to you by grace from God and that name settles your identity, then what we're going to do as human beings is we're going to go out and we're going to grab for things to find an identity. So the people say, we're going to build this great city. We're going to show off our technology to make a name for ourselves. I think probably most of us, to make a name for ourselves in our culture, we're like, do it. Do it, man. Put it on the top Stark Tower, right? Put it up there. Put your name in lights, man. Make a name for yourself. That's what America's all about. Exactly. But let's see what God thinks about that. See, the problem with cities and churches, for that matter, is that you can never... Listen, building cities, building churches, we're going to build the walls, we're going to keep out the bad stuff. You can't build walls high enough to keep out all the bad things because as soon as you finished your work, you realize that cities and churches are both made up of sinners. So all you did by building the high walls, you locked them in. You've gathered a bunch of people, a bunch of sinners into one place. And what's going to happen? Things are going to go bad. Right? You gather a bunch of sinners in one place who all, listen to us right, listen to this right here, who all of us want to make a name for ourselves. The problem isn't outside the city. The problem is inside the human heart. Just like Adam and Eve, we seek to make a name for ourselves on our own, by our own hands. We want to be defined by our contribution to society. We want to be defined by our beauty, our talents, our intelligence. This is what Facebook is built upon. Where can a a normal person go to feel like they live life in the middle of a model shoot? We are narcissistic people. 
the world needs more pictures of me. They've never seen this one or this one. Or Right? What are we doing? We're trying to build a name for ourselves. And that's one thing. This is one thing that is universally true about all people, every human on the planet. They want to feel special and valuable. They want to know that there's something unique about them, something distinct, something different, that I'm needed, people want me, I'm valuable. That in itself is not a problem, but hear me today. The problem arises out of where does a person go to receive that affirmation and value? Where do you go to get that affirmation, to get that value? Where do you go where something can name you, that something can say, you are valuable, you are distinct, you are good? Where do you go to find that? We see in this text that the people who are made in the image of God with inherent dignity and value, they're distinct by the nature of being made in the image of God. They do not wish to go to him to find their value. They decide to aim at the autonomous life. They would rather earn a name for themselves on their own, in their own strength, in their own power. Can I ask you today? Where do you go to find yourself? This is the question our culture is asking. I just got to find myself. I just got to, you know, I'm, I'm just really trying to find myself. Maybe school will tell me where it is. Maybe this relationship will tell me I'm valuable. Where do you go to find yourself? What is it that tells you you are special and valuable? Every, listen, don't, don't push this off and say, man, I want, my wife really needs to answer this question. Every person in this room needs to answer this question today. What names you? One of my favorite pastors, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a physician and then became a theologian and a pastor, he says, many men are born men, but die doctors. That having the, the two, those two, you know, the DR in front of your name or the MD behind your name many times provides an identity for somebody. They grow up feeling insignificant. They grow up feeling like, I want to be somebody. And if I get that, then I will be somebody. And our culture respects doctors, right? So in a sense, they get it. Where do you go? Be honest. What names you? What tells you who you are? Having good kids? Being a parent. Having good kids. What happens when your kids prove the Bible right and they're not good? Parents, how do you feel when the kid pitches a fit in the Walmart line? How fast do you start sweating? How quick do you dial your spouse when you get in the car? I don't know what to do with this kid. He just, 
He's a sinner. Why does it crush you? Do you go to the opposite sex, ladies? I'll give myself to this guy physically because having a man tells me I'm valuable. Do you go to beauty? Having the right clothes, having the right makeup, having the right hair, having the right profile picture defines me, tells people I'm valuable. your talents, the ability to speak well, the ability to gather a crowd of people around you, the ability to make people laugh. What is it that names you? Is it your education? If I get that, I'll be accepted. I'll be somebody. Is it a retirement account? Is it a second home? Is it a two-week vacation? When I get that, I'll be happy. When I get that, I know I'm somebody. There's been studies that say the most unhappy people on the planet are those who said, I'll get that and I'll be happy. And then they get it. And they realize, oh no, I'm not happy. The car, the retirement account, the woman, the women, the stuff, didn't satisfy the deepest desire of my heart like I thought it would, like the world promised it would, like the reality shows promised it would. Listen, if anything but God names you, it'll ruin you. If anything but God names you, it will ruin you. God is the only one, listen to this, God is the only one that will never fail you. And when you fail him, his son's already died for you and he's already forgiven you. When you're named by something else, when you fail it, it walks over your grave. For me, as I was sitting in my study and I was praying through this, I was preparing and I was asking what is it that's trying? What is it that tries to name me right now? I used to. It used to be. And it still is some. What would people, what people call the wrestler? That's who I used to be. And it's just identity, and that still comes back occasionally. But what it is now, as I was praying and thinking about this, is this: what tries to name me is the pastor. And I ask myself, how does the pastor try to name me? And I'm just going to be honest with you this morning. This is what the pastor tries to tell me, okay? It begins with this false belief. If I can be good enough, if I can be good enough, God will bless me, he will bless this church, and people will love me. Now listen, some of you are like, that doesn't sound bad. If I can be good enough, God will bless me. God will bless this church. And people will love me. Here's the problem. Well, there's a lot of problems with that. 
actually. What does it mean if things aren't going well? See, this requires me every day to be the perfect preacher. I want to say things this way, but I don't want to say them that way. I don't want to offend that person, but I don't want to offend that person, but I need to do this and I need to do that. And, and I hope, oh, was it funny enough? Was, was, it, was it exegetical enough? Was it deep enough? Was there gospel enough? Was it Christ-centered enough? Was it? I have to be the perfect preacher. It's not a big deal, right? But that's only one-third of my job. It's one day, actually. Then I also have to be the perfect priest. So anytime a person wants to talk, I got to be comforting and calm and settled. Yeah, that's easy for me. And, and I got to provide, I got to provide heartfelt gospel centered counseling. And I got to get to the root of the issue and, and I got to say the right things. And they're going to have this amazing Christophany, this experience where just Jesus comes alive and now my life has changed forever. And this church has been amazing. Oh, right? that, that's not a big deal. It's not very difficult, but then also, no, no, also that's, that's only, that's two thirds. Then I have to be the perfect administrator as well. Gotta make sure the city's all, everything's good. All the kids' ministry's all running well. And all the missional communities, everybody's running well. And oh, did somebody greet your hand? Did somebody shake your hand when you came into church this morning? Is everybody smiling? Did everybody make sure you felt like it was all about you? Not a big deal. Now listen, nobody says these things. Well, yes, some people do. But this is how I feel. This is what the identity, if I accept it, the identity of a pastor This is what it does. Now, listen, here's the good thing about it. Well, not really good, but this is why people do it. If I have a great sermon, I walk out with a swagger. The pastor showed up today. Did you see him? They were falling over the altar this morning. They were, I repent, tell me how to be saved. Everybody was just killed it, right? Or if I had a counseling appointment, the counseling appointment just nails, yeah, the pastor showed up today. Walk back to my, my, my wife. How'd the meeting go? Killed it. <laughs> Gospel-centered, right? The opposite of that. Administratively, we run out of a book or, or somebody doesn't know how to be baptized or somebody can't figure out the city or... This is how our culture has changed the pastor, pastorship today. We don't want a pastor. We want a CEO. This is how it shapes my heart. This is how it, it's a cancer to my soul. And this is why. So when things go well, I feel really good about myself, right? But then what happens when I screw it up? What happens when my inherent sinfulness comes out and I don't want to talk to you on the phone? I'm tired. I'm trying to raise my kids, right? My kids are screaming. I got a speeding ticket yesterday coming home from the pumpkin patch, right? The officer's like, why are you speeding? I'm like, I have three kids in the car and they're screaming. Why do you think I'm speeding? You want to get in here? Let's see how fast you go home. So listen, what happens then? What happens when I fail to deliver? I'll tell you what the pastor does. This is what the pastor does. You idiot. You're not good enough. I knew you weren't good enough. 
If you just try a little bit harder, people will love you. If you just try a little bit harder, your sermons will go better. If you just try a little bit harder, your counseling will go better. If you just try a little bit harder, you could be perfect. That's what pastor does. See, the idol, the false name of pastor is absolutely unforgiving. People leave and that hurts me. Makes me feel like a failure. Like, I, maybe I did something wrong. Then what happens? Then I get fearful and afraid. Who, who's going to leave next? And, and who, who's, who's trying to stab me in the back next? And, and it causes me to get fearful and afraid. And then I can't really love people very well. It causes me to get anxious. Man, I got to get back to my study. I got to get back to the study or this sermon's going to flop. Oh, I've had too many counseling meetings this week. I got to get my study and I got to get it. I get anxious and then becoming, listen to this, then becoming good enough becomes more important to me than walking with God. Anything but God that names you will ruin you. Unforgiving. This is why I love this story. It just shows the absolute sovereignty and graciousness of an almighty God. People disobey. They reject God and they start trying to find something else to worship, something they can control, something that will give them a name that they want, something a little more safe and comfortable. And what does God do to ensure that his mission moves forward? What's God do? Look in this text. Verse four, or no, verse five. And the Lord came down. Number one, this is hilarious to me because they're building a, what do they say? They're building a a tower to the heavens, but it says God has to come down to see it. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, I see something down there. There it is. I got it. Right? God, but listen, I want you to see this. What does God do when man fails? What does God do when mankind creates identities and idols for themselves and false ways to worship? What does God do? God comes down. The Lord comes down, he stoops to see their minuscule tower and then he comes down that he is faithful to his covenant that he made with Noah. Do you remember the covenant? I won't wipe you off the planet again like I did in the flood. This time when he comes down in judgment, he doesn't wipe them. He doesn't say swim for it again. He scatters them. You don't want to be on mission? You don't want to be on mission? Last time, swim for it. This time, you don't want to be on mission? You don't want to be on mission? Fine, I'll come down and I'll make it happen myself. God comes down. He confuses their language. This is literally, when you've ever heard, are you babbling? Why are you babbling? Comes from this story right here. The Tower of Babel. God comes down, confuses their languages, sends them out on mission, disperses them, takes it into his own hands and pushes them out. See, in the gospel, you find the city that God wants. It's a city within the city. It's a sacred city. 
See, only a sacred city filled with people who have been named by God can truly serve a city and not try to use it to make a name for themselves. If you come to this church or you come to a city to try to make a name for yourself, you are using it. I'm going to be a part of a missional community because I want people to tell me that I have value and meaning. I want to be a part of a fight club because I need more of that person's time. They can tell me that I have meaning and value. You're using it. You're not loving the city. You're not loving your church. God has sent us on a mission to love our city, to bless our city by making disciples and planting churches and renewing our city by bringing the gospel to bear on every aspect of our lives, our home, our entertainment, our work, our culture, every aspect of it. You see, this story right here, it's not ending on itself. It's pointing to another story that gets completed a couple thousand years later. This story is pointing towards something that we know pretty familiar. Another time where God comes down. See, God also sent his son, Jesus, as well to come down and walk with us. Jesus came down and he lived in a city. But the gospel tells us that Jesus was killed outside the city gates. Jesus came and lived in a city, but he was killed outside the city gates. Why is that significant? Because Jesus died for the city, outside the city, to give us a new city. To prepare us and to prepare for us a sacred city. In Revelation 22, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, Genesis is about the book of beginnings. Revelation is the book of the end. And in Revelation 22, when John is telling us what this new city will look like, this is what he says in verse 4. In this new city, they will see his face. Listen, they will see his face. That's God's. We will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. His name will be on their foreheads. In the city that God is building, the sacred city that will last forever, we will see God's face and he will give us a name by grace. He will give us his name. A name that we didn't have to earn. A name that isn't a slave master that says, just be good enough, be beautiful enough, be productive enough. A name by grace. A name that we don't have to earn. This is what it means to become a Christian. We receive a new name from God. He is no longer our enemy. He becomes our father through adoption. And he adopts us by sheer grace. We get a new name. I ask you again, what, what is naming you today? What's your identity built on today? This morning I stand here as an adopted son living in a city full of orphans, trying to let as many of them know as possible that God is gracious and he wants to be your daddy too. pray that today, 
you would turn from the idols that try to name you. You would turn from the safe gods that you want to build in your image to serve your needs. And you would turn and see the greatness and the graciousness of the God of the Bible who wants to give you his name by absolute sheer grace. God is the only one that will never fail you. And he's the only one that when you fail him, he forgives you. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that's found in it. I thank you for the relevancy of it today. I, I pray that you, could do a work, that you would do a work that no man could do, that you would um, cause us and enable us to turn from our false identities, the identities that we build of athlete and doctor and professional and successful, all these identities that enslave us, that try to tell us what the good life is. I pray that we would turn from those and we, we would embrace the identity of forgiven and loved sons and daughters by grace. And that would change our hearts. As we come and take part of the Lord's Supper and communion this morning, let us be reminded that this uh, free adoption you offer us wasn't free for you. But it costs the blood of your son Out of your son and his flesh torn and ripped asunder. The cost was high for you that we could receive this freely. I pray there would be nourishment to our soul this morning as we repent of our sins and turn towards you in faith. Name us, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen.